Hang on. Hang on. Halt. Welcome to This Might Be A Podcast, the song-by-song podcast about the greatest band of all time, They Might Be Giants. I'm your host, Greg Simpson, and I've got a very special guest here today, a former member of They Might Be Giants, bassist Tony Mamoni is here to talk about the song Snail Shell off of John Henry. <laughs> hey man how you doing good good trying to stay warm uh, here in brooklyn it's uh the temperature uh, the thermometer says 28 but the weatherman says the wind chills like 14 and we just got yeah. back from the park uh my kid did a few miles out there on the track and i did my best to try to keep up with him <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> how, how old is he really chilly um Milo's 10 Okay, so uh, probably got a lot of zip, got a lot of zip at that age. A lot more than me, that's for sure. <laughs> Very nice, yeah. That running will keep you warm, though. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the show, and I got to thank uh, Brian, Brian Doherty, uh, for hooking me up with uh, you to make this happen. Uh, did you listen to the episode I did with him on The Bells Are Ringing? I didn't listen to it yet. I saw it. I've been really busy doing a bunch of mixing and trying to get things, uh, you know, finished. Um, and, you know, I'll get to it for sure. But uh, I haven't gotten to it yet. I'm sure Brian will forgive you. <laughs> uh, it's uh, It's been awesome talking to... Uh, members of the band, former members of the band. I've talked to... All 
four guys who droned for They Might Be Giants so far. J.D. Feinberg, who just... Um, did you ever meet J.D. Feinberg? He, he drummed with them just on the Apollo tour. Yeah, then I was on that, too, so I... So I knew him and played with him. Okay. He's a, a very, very uh, meticulous, precise drummer. Yeah, I uh, I talked to him, which is, I, I feel like he's often glossed over just because he only ended up on one actual track, the cover of O Tenenbaum that they did. That's the only recording of him with They Might Be Giants. But yeah, he did that tour with them. So yeah, so uh, you... We're in rhythm section with him as well. And then, so yeah, I've talked, I talked to Brian about Bells Are Ringing. I talked to Dan Hickey about Rest A While. And I've talked to Marty as well, just about various drummer talk. And now I'm moving on to uh, the bassists, I guess. <laughs> right on. So like, yeah. who, is the, who is the bassist that came after me? I remember he had a five-string bass and was a really good bass player. For kids, uh, Graham... He, Maybe I think is it no, Mabby or maybe Graham? Graham? It, it wasn't Graham, Graham. No, Graham. Uh, Graham kind of flitted in and out. I, I want to say that he actually might have played a few shows with the Giants right before I joined. Uh, mm, let's he see. Went, he was definitely like a bass player around town. Um, Hale Cragen is he? No, 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 Graham, Graham, oh, yeah, I think, who's the other one? It wasn't, I know it wasn't Graham, it might have been. It's not Hal, Hal Cragen? Might have been Hal Cragen. Because he's. Is that the only other guy? Is he still playing well, with us? let's see. No, Danny Weinkoff is, has been their bassist since like 97, since like right after Factory Show. Wow. Wow. So you haven't been keeping up on the Giants, have you? <laughs> I've been running a studio I and know. Uh, making making records and yeah. uh, playing and raising a 10-year-old. So, no, I haven't. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. I'm here to talk about when you were in the band. Yeah, but I have, to, I, I have to say that I miss those guys. It's just that they... They're not around. I think they both live. I know. I mean, I know. Uh, I know one of. I know John lives up. Lives upstate. Do they both live upstate now? Mm, I'm not positive. Uh, they don't give their address out to me. So. <laughs> so I know. I thought. I thought. I thought. I thought it, I thought one of them was at least still in Brooklyn and maybe one in Manhattan, but maybe not. Yeah. John Linnell lives like uh, in Brooklyn, like around, uh, you know, like the Grand Army Plaza area, like around the museum, somewhere around there. And Mm -hmm. maybe, uh, yeah, I don't know. But I miss those guys. Like they were really, really great to work with. Uh, Yeah. I'm excited to hear all about that, but even um, before that, could we go way back pre-Giants? Sure. I want to know, um, was the bass guitar your first instrument? What were your first uh, musical experiences? Talking way back, like when you were a kid. 
like I remember when I was a kid, I had an acoustic guitar, uh, you know, like maybe around the seventh or eighth grade, but it was really hard to play. And uh, the teacher I had, you know, he wanted me to learn how to read and stuff, and it didn't quite <laughs> read take, music. <laughs> Uh. You know, and uh, he was a jazz guy, you know, of course. And um, and then I remember I played guitar at a talent show in the ninth grade at the end of the year. Uh, oh, yeah? Just like one tune. Uh, I remember it was Tony Camarado was the keyboard player. And me, I don't even think we had a drummer. And... Uh, I'm glad there isn't a recording of that because ooh, that might have been that might have been <laughs> uh, something hard to live through <laughs> to listen. Um, and then you know, did you um? Oh, just did you grow up uh, around Cleveland? You know, it's funny how you're so you're so affected by your environment, by the kids you hang out with, and. You know, there were a bunch of kids that liked music, but nobody really was, like, into playing. And uh, it was funny how nothing, like, just really happened. Uh, and then I remember, um, I met a bunch of guys that were playing music in Cleveland, and I moved into this house on 23rd Street, and some of those guys, one of them was Scott Krause, who would become the drummer in Perubu. And another mm -hmm. guy who was playing bass was Albert Dennis, who played with Peter Lochner. Um, and uh, he would give me, like, you know, like a few bass lessons down the road. But this was years before this would all happen. This was basically four years before I moved back to Cleveland. I moved to Florida and mm. I was just kicking around working and, uh, you know, it was Florida in the 70s, so it was no holds barred. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, so, like, none. It was just, it was just wild. And I was having a blast. Someone left a base over at my house. I still don't remember who it was. And it was a Univox bass. It was a copy of a Gibson wow. EB2. It it was huh. uh it was like a pla it was a plastic body, but it had a uh, a wooden neck. And I had this old hmm. stereo receiver that had an input jack on it and I plugged this thing in and the bass came right through the stereo, and I, I was listening to a lot of blues back then, and I noticed that I could, like, thump right along. So I started to do that, and a light kind of went out. I'm like, oh, wow. I'm, like, playing, and it doesn't sound <laughs> bad. And one thing led to the other. Uh, you know, my mom was going through some stuff back home up in Cleveland, she asked if I would, if I could come home to give her a hand, and I had flown down to Florida two years earlier, basically with a suitcase, and I drove back in a in a Mustang, you know, with my girlfriend <laughs> Sue, with my bass, and the whole back seat full of records in the stereo, and I got a room. That's the important in, stuff. I got, 
yeah, yeah. It's like everything I needed. And I got a room in Cleveland, and I started to just shed. And um, my buddies from Florida who were, uh, they were into boating uh, between the mainland and various islands. And they were, uh, they were involved in like the import-export business. And uh, they came up. I had this room. I had a desk with a clock in the center. I had like two rows of records on both sides. I had my bass and I had like a little little amp, you know, a little practice amp. And they came in, they go, dude, man, you got to come back down to Florida. We're making mad money. And I just looked at him and I said, nah, I'm going to I'm going to do this. And, uh, you know, like in a year or so that 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 came and went, they all got in various degrees of hot water. And uh, no, no. Yeah, I was I was glad not to be there for that. But, you know, they uh, they were buying properties on East Los Olas and then uh, like the rival export import export company kind of came down on them pretty hard. Oh, um, but so anyway, that's like you know. So I'm, I'm up from Florida, I'm in Cleveland, giving my mom the moral support she needs, you know. And uh, I heard about this building called the Plaza on 32nd and Prospect, which is a pretty rough neighborhood. I was living in Lakewood, like right on the lake, in this nice house where I just had a room. But anyway, I went down to the plaza and I got myself uh, like some like an apartment there. And it just so happened that the drummer who would become the drummer of Perubu lived there. The guitar player, one of the guitar players from Perubu lived there. The landlord would become the synthesizer player, Alan Ravenstein, <laughs> was the landlord. Oh, wow. And across the hall was Peter Loeffner and, and his wife, Charlotte. And so I was very disciplined. I would wake up in the morning. I'd have my coffee. You know, I would do, you know, three or four hours of bass. And then I would take a break, go down to the Y and just like stretch it out or go down to the park and run. Then I'd come back and I'd play the piano for a while. Then I'd play some guitar. And then I'd go <laughs> 10 bar, oh, like to make some money. Sure. So anyway, Peter living across the hall. And I don't know if, how much you know about uh, Peter Loeffner, but he's a dear, dear friend. And uh, I don't know too much about him other than uh, his guitaring in uh, Perubu. So. He's like a legendary musician, man. He could play kind of anything he wanted to. And uh, he, someone, I remember there was like a contest in, there was a magazine back then called Punk Magazine. And yeah. uh, you had to just you had legs to, McNeil, yeah, yeah. You had to describe, um, you had to describe, uh, you know, yourself as a musician. And uh, you know, Peter said playing cat scratch piano and singing like Bob Dylan with a cattle prod up his ass. <laughs> so he was that. Yeah, he, he was like he was like one of those kinds of guys, um, and. Uh, he heard me practicing. He came right over with a six-pack. And I remember he had that Miles Davis record, uh, Jack Johnson. And uh -huh. 
he had uh, like this reggae sampler record that had all these old school reggae artists like, you know, the Heptones and uh, and what have you. And he brought over uh, a Bob Marley record. And mm-hmm. at that time, I this was like 73, I didn't really know um i i knew about miles davis but i didn't know about the electric miles davis and uh i didn't know a lot about you know reggae music and peter you know he uh he loved that what's that song oh johnny you're too bad walking down mm. the road with the ratchet in your waist <laughs> that one and it's jimmy <laughs> cliff yeah See, so you know, Peter loved that. He loved the swagger, and uh, so anyway, we started jamming. And what happened was, this building was a magnet for all kinds of artists, not just musicians. Um, there were painters, there were uh, ceramic artists, um, and uh, it was this creative stew. And all these people were just around and everybody was just doing what they had to do to pay their bills and the rest of the time they're working on their art so there were jam sessions it was it was just unbelievable and so anyway peter left perubu and started a band called friction with anton fear and myself and uh, we rehearsed in anton's basement for the summer like what seemed like a whole summer and then in the fall we played a show it was like a birthday party for the manager of coventry books and it was at like a restaurant and um i remember david thomas and tom herman came to the show and uh, you know we were playing all kinds of stuff we were playing like a patty smith song we played a couple television songs we played an eddie cochran tune uh we did a couple of peter's originals um we were just rocking and nice. uh, the the guys from Peru, they asked me to come and sit in, to to to, to jam, and um, mm-hmm. I came to jam with them once, and then that was really, you know, Tim moved over from bass to guitar, but then didn't stay. Like after a couple of rehearsals, he kind of faded out, and um, uh, and we started. Tim Wright. Yeah. yeah, we we started writing. Uh, I had a lot of stuff because I'd been playing a lot. I had a lot of I had a lot of stuff, and um, a lot of that stuff became uh, became songs. Like Perubu, we would compose very organically. You know, we would jam. David would be on the microphone. Tom would be playing guitar. Um, Alan would be playing synthesizer. Scott on the drums. We would just play, and if we got we heard something we liked, you know, we would record it just. On, on a cassette machine with yeah. with vocal with a vocal without a vocal and then david would go home and write lyrics or maybe you know, come back and say oh maybe we could like lengthen this or shorten this and that was really yeah. how a lot of the early perubu records got written um nice and so yeah, that's one thing I, I love about about you guys is just that it sounds so free yeah like there just wasn't one way of doing things is, is the way it comes off is that like you said like some of them sound more jammy and improvised and some of them really lock in tight in that kind of post-punk way and it just sounds like yeah there was a lot of freedom in 
what the art you were making. You know, like you were talking about, uh, I think in the email you mentioned non-alignment pack, you know, and uh, I listened to that. And I hadn't listened to it in a while. I mean, the last time I played with Peru was a couple summers ago. I, uh, uh, the girl who took my position, Michelle Temple, um, a mm-hmm. great a great musician, uh, and an educator, um, and a really creative, amazing player. She st- when I left the band in '92. Michelle took over and she held the chair all this time, but she was adopting someone and they needed to be in New York for the two weeks that were going to be the end of the uh, the Ubu World Tour, which was going to go across Italy and then end up in Tel Aviv. So I sat in for that and uh, that was great to be back with everyone. Um, yeah, I saw an article about that. It's, it's uh, pretty cool. Yeah, it, w- it was really, really great. But... Um, we didn't play non-alignment pact. Um, hmm. And I remember, and I listened to it and I thought, well, yeah, there's so much material since then. So there's a lot to choose from. There's a lot to choose from. Yeah. David never stopped. You know, he just kept on going. And uh, I actually just, yeah, said, I saw even during that, cause there's a brief period in the eighties when Perubu kind of went on a hiatus, but then you still played on David's, David did other records, right? And you played on those too. Yeah, and, and then I, Perry we started back up again. And I yeah. tour and I toured with him, like with Lindsey uh, Cooper and Chris Cutler. Um, that was like called the Wooden Birds. We did that, and then um, and then I think it was, I think it was that um, Alan came back with on the synthesizer. And and then Jimmy came in on guitar, and then we asked Scott to come in, and then it was like it was Perubu plus Chris Cutler on drums for nice. for one or two albums. And I just did yeah. like a remake of one of those songs because the song's being re-released. Uh, the uh, the record Tenement Year is going to be re-released, and so. I nice. redid one of those songs with a bunch of my crew at the studio. And um, oh, I cool. can send you the link to the video. It's fun because Milo does his uh, his recording debut. You know, he's he's playing uh, he's playing Shakers. But like very... Oh, your son? Yeah? Yeah, because the rhythm nice. part is with like three musicians doing like uh, a, a drum on a on a stand chris uh, chris cubetta one of my partners at the studio he's playing that and then hitting the stick on the rim of the uh of the of the the big uh, kick drum and then he's got a cymbal and then another drummer engineer uh, of ours richard salino he's playing tambourine but in a very specific way and then milo Uh his shaker like (laughs) does like a one and a two and so uh i was so proud of him and he just he stood there just like a like one of the people on in the session and just was focused and so i'll send that to you that's amazing really yeah, fun, i'd love but to hear that this is a long way of me saying i was listening to the song and listening to two drummers in that room at suma where we made all of our records it was amazing to hear 
for the sound and to hear how those two drummers figured out like two parts to become you know one big part yeah that's yeah. super cool. Yeah. Hey, let's jump back to, uh, let's let people hear Non-Alignment Pact, because uh, we got to make sure all the Giants fans that are listening here uh, can hear your uh, where you got your, your big start. So on uh, this is the debut full-length of Modern Dance. Let's listen to this, Non-Alignment Pact by Per Ubu. I love where the bass is sitting in the mix here. You can really hear those walks. <laughs> you some like got some octaves going in there later. So when, when you when you listen to that back again after so long, uh, what would you think about? Uh, you're like, yeah, I still dig that bass part. You're like, eh, oh yeah, done something different. Yeah. Oh no, no, that was the bass part. You know, before we went into it fits like, perfectly. Before we went into record. I could play my bass parts. We didn't have click tracks back then, but we had metronomes. I could play my part like hands down, like with or without everybody else. And um, I was very, very into the double stops because I'd been listening to a lot of Mingus. And like Mingus ah. was really into double stops. Um, and uh, sure. so I was employed, and so was Ron Carter. Like I was, I was listening to a lot of jazz back then. Ron Carter, he's got a visit in my college when I was uh, in college. Wow, yeah. what a giant, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> man. Yeah, those guys. I mean, yeah, you, you can always tell the uh, the rock and roll and punk players that, you know, did woodshedding on jazz stuff because it, you know, works its way into the rock and roll. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. So cool. Uh yeah, Per Ubu is great. I I uh, I know I was listening to Non Alignment Pact, and I always I don't know how I could possibly forget, but I always forget that there's that screaming like is that synthesizer that does that like screaming whistle at the beginning? Um, yes. Yeah, and <laughs> I have a feeling that just some people are going to be listening. They're going to be like, "Whoa!" And I'm going to be like, "Yeah, it's fucking like just so obnoxious and awesome." <laughs> well, the thing is, is the the the. Um, the the remastered version, the synthesizer definitely popped out a little more than like what's on the original <laughs> record. So yeah, everybody get ready for <laughs> Alan Ravenstein on the EML yeah. 100. Ooh. Yeah. I don't know. They, they were doing some EQ on the mastering there and found that frequency of that synthesizer <laughs> and just notched it up just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it sounds great. Yeah, uh, I would highly recommend Giants fans check out Pierre Ubu. It's one of those bands that, um, I mean, for people that like the weirdest They Might Be Giants stuff, I think you'd be into Pierre Ubu. Because there are times when Pierre Ubu gets, I don't know if I'd say poppy, but melodic. 
and times where it's just the rock just it just locks in and there's other times where it gets you know more expressive there's just for a band like they might be giants we love them because the genres go all over the place and pair ubu are in their their own world as well going to all these different places so i would highly recommend uh giants fans go and check out some more and uh especially to uh listen to some more tony's bass playing so uh let's get into um well in, in the 80s had you heard of they might be giants before you kind of uh, got close to like being in the band were you aware of them i saw those guys play at the lone star cafe back when they were just um playing with a tape recorder yep they well, were you opening... were on the first album that wasn't just them playing with a tape recorder <laughs> i know they were they were opening for i think they were opening for wilson pickett at hmm. the the lone star cafe and they were they were really amazing to see two guys but they had all these backing tracks and uh i thought they were really cool and then i was on tour with uh with charles thompson um and charles was a big is a big uh, they might be giants fan and uh we were listening to they might be giants and uh i think what happened was flans was talking to charles about putting a band together and uh and i think flans mentioned that i wasn't working with peru that i had been touring with him and then there was like um it might have been a record release party for like the apollo record and yeah. uh they invited me and flans came running up to me and you know how you know how how he is <laughs> he goes, hey tony how are you man he says you want to come and play some bass with us it was just like really you know I'm like, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I know those guys were were fans of Perubu, so I'm sure it was, uh, you know, kind of like he was probably like, oh, I hope we'll do it. I hope we'll do it. But you know, you don't want to. You just want to come off casual, right? <laughs> well, you know what? It's like Flans is like, you know, he wears his heart on his sleeve, and to a certain degree, I do too. It's like. Uh, I don't try to hide, you know, enthusiasm. You know, sometimes, you know, I probably get clobbered for being a little too enthusiastic, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a believer. You know, <laughs> what can I say? Yeah. I mean, if you're an artist of any stripe, you got to have passion or else what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. So it was so simple as that. A uh, Apollo 18 release show and, hey, you want to play the bass? And then, boom, you're in the band. <laughs> well, the thing was, um, I had to. We were making another Perubu record, and uh, we were up at this place in, in Stoughton, Massachusetts, called the Outpost. And uh, you know, we had most of the record written, but we had to do some writing in the studio. And then when I would take a break, there was a park. It was like a, a school next door with a with a big field. I'd go out there and run, and I would listen to all the demos of the songs that we were going to 
play or like the re- recorded versions of because we were going to do some new stuff. And I remember of oh, the I John was, Henry songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, but yeah. I, and, and some of the other ones as well. And I remember um, I was running the first time I heard Birdhouse uh, in your soul. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I just couldn't believe how good it sounded. And it's like was well, such a great <laughs> song to run to, you know. Like with yeah. those, you know, it was just like such a great song. Um, yeah, they're like, you got to learn this one. We play it at every show. <laughs> it's such a great song. And I learned uh, I learned all those songs, you know, listening to them uh, while I was making the Ubu record. And then mm-hmm. after we finished the Ubu record, um, yeah, we went on, we, we went into rehearsals and... Uh, yeah, I can't remember exactly where our first show was. Probably New York. You would probably know that. Yeah. Well, let's see. I could look in the uh, the They Might Be Giants wiki is very comprehensive. Uh, of so course. this would be. So it's after Apollo. So we're talking. We're talking ninety two. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. We'll figure it out. Um. Was it at the Fast Lane in Asbury Park, New Jersey? Uh, what else you got because then there was one well then there was warsaw in brooklyn that and then that might have been it okay because those were those were one day after another so maybe you did play because there's asbury park new jersey brooklyn new york and then over to glasgow and then there's a bunch of uk dates and germany that sounds like what they would do play the first one in new jersey and then come home to Brooklyn to the Warsaw, like where you can get a nice kielbasa sandwich in between sets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it sounds great. Oh, I love that place. When you guys came back to the U.S., you played my hometown. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. You guys played at, must be a radio station, WCBR in Arlington Heights, Illinois. That's yeah. where I grew up. That's where you grew up? <laughs> yep. Wow. <laughs> Action Heights, we called it. I spent <laughs> spent a lot of time in Chicago. Yeah, because I played with John Langford, who lives there. I played with the Wacos. Um, I did a bunch of recording there. I actually just made a record at Steve Albini's place with uh, oh yeah this, with this amazing woman, Natalie uh, Yoshin. We made a record called. Uh, Femte Fight. Uh, what is it? Uh, and you play bass on it? Uh, no, I uh, I produced it and recorded it. Oh, okay. Uh, it's called Fem D I E T. Um, F A M small D, then an apostrophe. It means uh, women of Haiti. And, hmm. and uh, it's on Spotify. It's this beautiful record. Natalie sings in. Uh, like the Haitian, like French. And uh, we did it with a, a quartet from Chicago called the Spectral Quartet. And uh, okay. we did it at Albini's place. And then I brought it back here and mixed it at Studio G. And uh, we got nominated for a Grammy for world music. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. That's so awesome. so I was in Chicago to do that. And uh, I've been there. So like, you're at Albini's studio. So it was all analog oh. then? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, when we recorded uh, Femme de Haiti, 
that we we recorded straight to Pro Tools. We did not hit tape. Mm. We recorded it okay. at uh, you know at one ninety. Well, we recorded it at ninety six actually. Um, the sure. quartet. I didn't know if Albini and, even had a computer in the place. <laughs> oh yeah, actually he does. But he he was just here at Studio G making a record, and uh, he does not want the computer there. He doesn't. He doesn't really. <laughs> He doesn't really want it in the room. I mean, you could put it in the corner. <laughs> the dude is just, he is tr- truly all analog. Truly. <laughs> yeah. He's hes a character. He's, uh, he, talk about a guy who's passionate. <laughs> I, I, I really, really, really like him. He, uh, he let me, uh, he, uh, I asked him if, uh, you know, if I could stay in one of the residential suites there at the studio and he said yeah no problem basically gave me the keys to the studio so i could come and go as i wanted and let me use his bicycle while i was there (laughs) what a nice host yeah that's awesome they got a captain they have a they have a full-on espresso machine in the uh the kitchen and it's just, uh, you know, that's a place built by someone that, as you say, is very passionate about music, about recording. And while we were there, I asked him if he wanted to play on a John Langford song that I that I recorded many years ago, actually with Brian, like a hillbilly oh. love song called I'm Going Over the Cliff. And that John <laughs> wanted to recut it. And we asked, uh, we asked Steve if he wanted to play on it, and he said, "Well, the studio's booked up for the whole week." Because I think what happens, many people might ask him, "Hey, Steve, come, you know, you want to play on one of our songs?" And maybe, <laughs> you know, in the hopes that they can record at his studio. But we said, "No, no, we're <laughs> going to go to a different studio." We went to a different studio, and it was amazing to hear him play, like on this. Uh, you know this kind of gut bucket like hillbilly rock song you know with all of that's us cool. yeah so that's yeah i cool. got i'm very very fond of chicago yeah back to to tmbg so yeah your first experience was was quite a bit of touring and then when the john henry songs started being written what was it like being the first well, the first human bassist in the band, when they were bringing in these new songs, was there a lot of like direction given to you about what you should do? Or was it kind of like, you know, let's see what you got. They were always like super open, like to whatever you would come up with. I have to say like John Linnell's compositions, um, they would come, well, I think you have the demo. Because I think you sent it to me, the demo of Snail Shell. And his bass part is so perfect. that. Well, first, before we even get to that demo, I want to play this Dial-A-Song version, which we don't even know. I can't figure out what year that it ended up on their, you know, their answering machine. People would call in. Um that dial a song version there, that this, this compilation that this person put together, they're varying degrees of fidelity and this one is particularly <laughs> low fidelity okay and it has a lot of little digital artifacts on it <laughs> 
So it's hard to tell from that recording if there is even any bass or even synth bass in there. I mean, mostly what you're hearing is just the ding, 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 ding. You know, you're not really hearing the the funkiness that came to be in that song. But had, had you ever heard that before? I know it might even be hard to recognize in this state of uh, fidelity, but, you know... <laughs> Yeah, there. I know there was a demo. Uh, yeah, so then the one I sent you that was an MP3. The they released the John Henry demos uh, in December of uh, 2018. Finally on CD, they released the demos, and so that one they've kept it off of streaming, so you can't find it on YouTube or Spotify or anywhere. So that's why I had to send you that that MP3 there. Uh huh. And I'll I'll drop that in here for people that haven't heard it. That's Linnell. Yeah, that's Linnell. That's Linnell playing bass. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So then that that brings me to my next question, uh, because I was going to ask you if if they asked for slap, for slap bass. But if that's Linnell doing that slap in the uh, demo, then I guess it was like, yep, you're going to slap on this one. But... But yeah. yeah, you can tell the on the the demo the the baseline is just a little more simplistic. It's more just like low, high, low, high, and you uh, on the proper studio version, there's a little more walking around on the low end between you know the high slaps. So uh, that's very interesting. I did not know that. I just assumed it was you on those demos. So the demos. Oh, but but then, now wait, but now hold on for a second. Okay. You know what? Uh, we did do a whole series of demos at Excel okay. Recording because it's it's coming back to me now, Greg. It's coming back to me. Uh, so it is you. Yeah, that might be me. But it's okay because uh, 
Yeah, and the CD release for the demos, it does have you listed, but it doesn't have any track-by-track track stuff. So I was wondering, you know, maybe there could have been different stuff. Oh, then it's me. We, yeah, we did the whole record at Excello. Okay, uh, yeah. And But I got to say, John Linnell, uh, he is like a, a very, very, very astute composer. And, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, how about that vocal on Snail yeah. Show? It's well, so good. But then, so, oh, we were going to talk all about those vocals, but the, the slapping, I want to know, was there instructions for you to, did he want slap bass or was that just something you tried and he liked? Uh, there was definitely not instructions. Uh, you see... I remember, too, though, that whatever keyboard John Linnell was using, it had like a slappy bass sample in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and sometimes it would be, you would hear it on some of the demos, but, and I can't, I know, I'm sorry, I can't really recall, but it's just such a perfect thing that to put the slap there. Um I want to say it was probably it was probably there, you know, like in the demo. Okay, the the pre the pre demo session demo. So even before that, yeah, I kind of um, think so. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Okay, yeah, because it's one of those things that I was just racking my brain to see if I could think of anything, but I feel like out of like there's like a thousand they might be giant songs. I think this is the only one or one of just a few that has slap bass in it so it's not usually right. a direction they go to and it really takes the song in a whole other direction because when you hear that dial song it's just like little staccato quarter notes on that keyboard but then when you and and brian get to it it's like all of a sudden it's just funky <laughs> brian brian is one heck of a drummer man he is yeah he's one of the best he's one of the best drummers i've ever played with hands down wow yeah he's yeah. a great great uh, great bass player drummer yeah just that and 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 the drum sound on the album is just amazing it's like i think there must be some cowbell in there too but it's all just very metallic sounding it's just very uh yeah everything just sounds very metallic and just like that real aggressive slap on the bass there it's just like it took the song in a whole new direction and and but yeah like i said you can you can tell that in the 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 proper demo like i said it was kind of like low high low high and then when it came around to the full recording right you added a little more walking in on the low notes between the high slaps so you can hear how it evolves from from your end too but I mean that makes the song. It's such a distinctive song, and this is for a band that's their catalog is full of distinctive songs. But this one really sticks out just because they're not typically the funkiest band, <laughs> you know. But this tune, it's just like you know, it, you notice it immediately, uh, you know, in a set or in a track list. So yeah, man, that bass part—you made it. This song, so great. You know, that cowbell, that cowbell might actually have been in the demo as well. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The Johns, they, they do have a very specific vision, but it, it's cool that they did let you, uh, you know, let you stretch a little bit. It sounds like, so they weren't too rigid about like, uh, no, we should probably do this instead. No, they were, they were super chill. But the thing too is, you know, like I can speak for myself and for Brian, I think we're the kind of musicians that really listen to the song and Mm -hmm. you know like a song like snail shell you know you're going to put those you're not going to fill those pauses up because you think you're going to make it better by playing something in there you know so it was kind of like yeah nobody ever said anything but at the same time we weren't trying to like slip in like any like Jocko licks, you know, or anything. You know, not, that, not that I could, <laughs> yeah. you know, but I mean, you know. Uh, Check me out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the songs are very, very, uh, you know, they're very well thought out and they're very like directional. Like the song shows mm-hmm. you, I mean, like a song like, you know, Birdhouse, like how much can you change that bass line? Because the song is going by like a freight train, you know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because then you were the first uh, human bassist to have to uh, adjust from synth bass parts. I mean, they'd they'd have the occasional song like um, the guitar off Apollo. I mean, that has actual bass guitar in it. That's probably fun, right? (laughs) Dun, 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 dun. Sounds like Flansburg. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Man, God, it must have been so fun jumping into a jumping into a band with that catalog at that point. But it really was. Getting to create new songs with it must have been so fun and just like it was the unexplored territory. You were the the first one, you know, pioneering the the line of bassists that would uh, you know, start in the line of bassists in the TMBG history. Well, you know, I feel Pretty, uh, I feel yeah. I feel privileged and honored, you know, to hold that spot. And uh, you know, I have nothing but uh, good things to say about those guys. They uh, they treated the band like princes. They they took really nice care of us. They paid us well. We always stayed in nice places, and it, they were just they were just great guys to work with, like all around. They spoiled, awesome to hear. they spoiled me <laughs> because, <Yeah. laughs> you know, like I worked with those cats for the better part of two years and then I really wanted to build this studio and they, uh, I remember we were doing some rehearsals and I was just working really long hours and, you know, it just seemed like, you know, I did this for two years, maybe I should, you know, just step back and concentrate on this new phase in the life. And, and do this but uh, you know uh, those guys they enabled it they were so they were so generous and so nice like I saved my money for those years and that's really one of the major chunks of dough that I had to, to start constructing Studio G was from They Might Be oh, Giants great. absolutely so they weren't bummed about you wanting to you know do something else well you know it had been a couple years and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they understood that, you know, they, I think they understood it, you know, and there was like, sure. a, there was, mm-hmm. they had somebody, 
the guy who was who took over from me, he was working in Jamie, the manager's office. Mm. And he was a sharp kid, he was playing a five string bass and he knew all the parts, you know, so it was no hard for them like to find a replacement and there was like a line of people yeah. that wanted the job so <laughs> yeah well that's cool yeah but um back to the snail shell so we talked a lot about the bass part obviously um and those drums a little bit what what are some of your other favorite musical before we even get to those lyrics before the musical elements what are your favorite bits of uh, uh snail shell well i love i love the groove i love the beat i love that I love that metallic cowbell. You know, I love mm-hmm. I love the drums. Um, the thing I love about Snail Shell too is I love that ascending chord progression that come that that, yeah. that goes up until where he says Snail Shell. You know, I was gonna bring that up. Yeah, it it almost like it gives it this kind of uneasy feeling where it's just like growing and growing and growing. Cause I, I was, cause I was listening to that cause you know, the wiki has a guitar tab. It even has a, a bass tab too, which if you look at it and see how accurate it is. But yeah, on the, uh, well, is it something you would do for anybody? It's like a B C D E F sharp G G sharp. It gets chromatic there. And it's yeah. just like, he's like, and then, I want to thank you. And then it hits that, the hook. It's like so effective. And it's something me as a songwriter, I would never think to do. It's just that, that Linnell genius. Well, that, and the thing, the other fav- one of my favorite things about that song is, you know, the vocal is just off the charts. Great. If you listen to how John varies um, the way he ends the phrases, some of the phrases, I believe, like in the verse, they're clipped. Like, you know, at the end of a phrase, he clips it. But then in the chorus, he definitely lets it drip over a little. Like he's like in, uh-huh. he's, he's like in total control. Yeah, the amount of uh, emotion that comes through in this song through just those different vocal techniques, it, it really, yeah, it makes this song just right off the bat sir hand there's just like all that that like grit to it you know and then yeah it kind of smooths out a little bit on that climbing part well is this something you would do for it you know it just kind of gets a little smoother yeah. there's so many different techniques being employed but it, it does he say sir hand sir hand sir hand yeah or or is it ma'am or is it ma'am right talking about that you know, or the if we, <laughs> and we can talk about the meaning of the lyrics, but if it were a literal snail, you know, it's this hand that's putting the snail back in the snail shell, right? I mean, it's so <laughs> funny, but it's really dark, you know. Yeah, yeah. What? Uh, so, I mean, you played on this song, and you you toured on this song. What? Uh, I mean, did you ever think too much about what the what it's really about, or is it just about a snail? <laughs> That's that's the genius of Linnell. It could right. just be about a snail, or it could be about a guy who's you know who's being jilted and put up on the shelf. You know, right? Uh, you know, um, yeah. That's that's just that's just like a fabulous tune. 
and it was yeah. it was always fun. It was always fun, like to like listen and watch Brian play that drum fill in the break, you know. Oh yeah, that yeah, and then you got your uh, your bass feature too. The and what I love is I'm gonna play a couple live clips here. There's there's one from the promotional live in NYC '94. Um, but I want to play this one off of, did you watch the clip of you guys on the John Stewart show? I did not. Um, I mean, I'm, oh, I'm sure I saw it, but I didn't watch it, uh, in preparation for our talk here. No. Well, let me send this to you real quick. Cause the, the reason I really wanted to play this particular one, cause you guys were on a couple different, uh, TV shows, but on this John Stewart show, you go a little more wild on that uh, that bass break down there, you know, because on the studio version it's really just like two notes, right? Right. But this one, you go a little more wild on this one. Let me let me send you a link to this. I think I'll get a kick out of this. Flans was always Flans was always prodding me, you know, to like you know, hey man, you know. My next guest for over ten years, New Yorkers have been calling the Dial a Song service provided by. These fine musicians. Now we've got them off the phone and here with us tonight performing Snail Shell from their new album, John Henry, They Might Be Giants. Now. And Flans, Flans seems to still have a, a yeah. price tag on the headstock of his guitar. He was, he was very proud of that. That <laughs> was a really good band, man. Woo. So yeah, you gave it a little extra flair there. Also, I love um, non-bassists probably might not catch this, and I don't consider myself a bassist bassist, but you're using a pick and doing some palm muting on that breakdown, and then you see the pick go in your mouth. To go back to the slap part. <laughs> yeah, because it was moving kind of quick. Moving kind of quick there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that, though. Yeah, that's great. Um, 
Yeah, the uh, the live in NYC one is pretty good too, just because the uh, recording quality is so great. So I'll drop a little bit of that in there too. those lyrics for a second the uh the wiki the they might be giants wiki one of the one of the funnest places to get uh the most fun places to get lost in is this interpretations tab people can submit what they think the songs mean and with they might be giants they can get pretty pretty crazy (laughs) um it seems like one of the common the common uh consensus on this song is that it's sung sarcastically right it's someone that knows they've been done wrong uh and this person you know that this person thinks they're better than them they're like oh thank you thank you so much for putting me back in my place that it's sarcastic um but one thing that i would always think about was something like you know and this isn't a political podcast but makes me think about people that vote against their best interests yeah like for example right people like for example that might be in a lower income bracket voting republican because they think trump this you know millionaire is going to help help out the poor guy right yeah but you know he's just giving tax breaks to the rich right so this is sung in a more sincere tone (laughs) someone who doesn't realize they're being done wrong doesn't realize that this person doesn't have their best interests at heart that's uh that's the way i always thought about it but um seems like the common consensus is that it's sarcastic but either way this person's been done wrong and they're being they're being put back in their place thanks for putting me back in my snail shell because it really drives it home at the end there's that little extension of the chorus at the end. So you've got the, the main chorus, right? Was it something you would do for anybody? Was it what you'd only do for me? And then the extension goes, or was it something where you acted when you saw the need and knew that there would be a way the act could be repaid? So this person, you know, they know they're, they're doing you this favor, but they know it's just, it's for themselves. They're going to get something and they're going to cash in that favor, right? It's like, it's like the mob. They're going to, you know, you know, they're going to come calling later you know for their <laughs> their favor <laughs> i could totally see that yeah that's that's why you know when i picked i mean they may be giants have been my favorite band for you know as long as i can remember but they're for 
you know, people question, they're like, it's a, only one song per episode. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, are you really going to have that much to talk about? And I'm like, with AMF Giants? Yes. <laughs> because yeah. the lyrics aren't just surface. Uh, musically, the songs don't all sound the same. So there's just, there's a lot to talk about. And songs like Snail Shell, it's just like, there's a lot to dig into. Yeah. Got, both of the guys are really, really great writers and uh, humorous and uh you know like there's a lot of lot of meaning there's a lot of meaning stacked up and especially like in a song like snail shell you know i mean Mm -hmm. i just kind of i kind of always thought it was a guy like singing to a girl i kind of took it that way okay but Uh uh you know i'm sure that you know linnell being the crafty writer that he is like <laughs> made it so that it could mean a lot of different things yep yeah they're pretty famous for not telling in interviews not telling people what the songs are about because they want yeah. us to you know come up with our own thing well of course but it's fun to, hypoth- to hypothesize yeah <laughs> i mean listen to those interviews where people are asking dylan you know you know right you know if he's the messiah i mean the guy's just writing a song, you know? <laughs> yeah. He was pretty famous for fucking with interviewers. <laughs> well, because they fucked with him. Like, he's not even yeah. 21. He's like a whole room full of seasoned, hardened veterans, you know? Just like, you know, somebody could think that that's just like a lamb going into the lion's den. But, you know... Mm. It didn't take him long to learn how to handle them. <laughs> right. Yeah, man. And he is still going strong. I don't know if did you hear his most recent album, Rough and Rowdy Ways? Yeah, I really like I really like it. It's a really, really good yeah. record. I know. It's like how are you still making records that good so far into your career? It's uh it's pretty amazing. Yeah, well it's like if you listen yeah. if you listen to the the, the musicians that he has, like, that's such a crack outfit. You know, I mean, the guitar playing is spectacular. The bass playing is spectacular. I mean, everybody is at the top of their game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Surround themselves with the best people, just like the Johns did when they hired you. <laughs> I was honored. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, man, I mean, yeah, you already had quite a pedigree by then. I mean, they were, uh, they they made a good choice there. That John Henry bass playing overall is awesome. So then there was this Back to Skull EP where uh, the Dust Brothers did a remix called Snail Dust. Yes. 
did you remember this or did you did you get to check it out yeah it didn't didn't ring my <laughs> bells really hard i thought you know well it I, takes the baseline out of there completely well not only but that's that's not you know like in a remix everything's up for grabs but they didn't really bring anything to it like there's it's pretty watered down sounding to me it's pretty simple and i don't like yeah yeah too simple you know cha-ching, you know what i mean i think it was a job <laughs> they, i think they turned it <laughs> i mean look i i just think that you should be able to do anything you want to do when you're remixing a song but I do think you should address the the essential energy, the essential thrust, like the essential core of the song, right. if you're really going to remix it. I mean, the way that thing starts, it, it has nothing to do with snail shell. And I'll be honest yeah. with you, I didn't listen <laughs> to the whole thing. I didn't. I listened to a chunk of it. I thought, eh. It really doesn't do a whole lot more. And I mean, I don't know if it's really a ching situation because the Dust Brothers, they came back around and worked uh, with the the Giants on uh, their 2007 album, The Else. So these guys, you know, they've, they've interacted more than just this one time. And clearly the Dust Brothers put in some work because there were actually two demos before that's Snail Dust. And the one that I sent you, this demo one, it's like completely different. It's got this little piano sample in there. has this it suffers from the same kind of problem is that yeah obviously you want them to do something kind of wacky with it or else what's the point but like you said it's losing like the main the main thrust right it's it's got so little of the core elements it's like they just took the vocal and like oh you guys want all the stems not just the vocal we're gonna do whatever the fuck we want with the rest of it we just need the vocal yeah i mean like i don't like you know I don't expect a remix of a giant song that it necessarily has to be wacky because if you ask mm-hmm. me snail shells not wacky at all it's like a right. it's a brass knuckle hard hitting pop song and there's just I mean it's tough and there's just nothing tough about that remix <laughs> and yeah it's not even bumping <laughs> right and I mean, not that the remix would have to be thumping but if it wasn't going to be thumping if it was going to mellow then it should really do something like make it like mellow so that the guy sitting there in his smoking jacket with his Hugh Hefner like pipe 
and uh-huh. you know or whatever <laughs> and like take it take it somewhere but i just felt like it didn't go anywhere yeah it's just kind of there taking up space <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i i i agree it doesn't do much for me either and i like a lot of the stuff the dust brothers have done like with beck and me too me too and uh the else is is a great album so it's just kind of weird it's just kind of blah you know whatever but so yeah so let's move on from that do you want to hear uh you want to check out some of these fan covers of snail shell well like i listened to a few of them and uh okay let's check out this first one is by a band called guest host which i think is just one guy i'm not sure what his name is though i need to figure that out but guest host one.bandcamp.com cover is pretty straight ahead what did you think of that one i just thought it was pretty straight ahead you know i mean like i didn't feel like i didn't feel like it added anything you know like when Jimi hendrix like did all along the watchtower which is a bob dylan song off the john wesley mm-hmm. harding record he really brought something to it when uh you know like even like when judy collins like did uh that Joni Mitchell doing uh, Clouds, you know, even she, you know, like she brought something to it. This one, it just sounds, you know, it just sounds like a kid, you know, like just doing the song. I mean, it. <laughs> well, but it, when it, you it say that there's something a little admirable about attempting to do a song this hard. I mean, because there really yeah. weren't that many covers. There are there are some Name Empty Giant songs you will find a ton of covers. This one I was getting kind of worried about because usually YouTube is the main place to go for covers. Zero snail shell covers. I head over to Bandcamp and that's where I find these ones, uh, uh-huh. especially on this, this these next album that I'll tell you about. But snail shell, I think people are just uh, scared by its distinctiveness. Maybe that they don't know what to do with it. So maybe that's why he just went a little more straight up with it. And I think, you know, there's something to that, attempting a song as hard as, sure. as Snail Shell. And and nothing, and nothing, I actually preferred that to the Dust Brothers remix, for sure. Like, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, I, <laughs> same, I, same. I, prefer, I preferred the host's version, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So that's guest host. And then, so the other three that I sent you are all from a John Henry tribute. It was uh, released a couple years ago for... Uh, 
It was released in uh, September of 2019 for the 25th anniversary of John Henry. Uh, this is tmbs.bandcamp.com, and the album is just called John Henry. And I don't know if you saw the artwork there, but someone, uh Okembo is the guy who spearheaded this. I think he's the one that did this art, but it's the Sgt. Pepper's cover, but every face that. is replaced with the John Henry girl. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. I thought that so was pretty good. Yeah. Right, right. So this one, I think there's three covers of every single song on the album because this this tribute album it's uh 45 tracks. <laughs> so wow. there's three snail shell covers. <laughs> there's three snail shell covers all in this one, and the first one we're gonna listen to is by Cat uh, Voltron. <laughs> into six eight one two three four five six dun, 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 this little shuffle this bluesy shuffle i see i call that a proper remix that's proper <laughs> that's yeah that's a, the way you do a cover he's really making it his own that's how you do a cover i really really like that i think i think that's superb I love how before the first verse, the uh, vocals even come in, he throws in that bluesy cliche, <laughs> just like, it's not from the original at all. He's just like, well, if I'm going to do the uh, this blues thing, might as well throw that lick in. <laughs> it's worked for a million blues artists in the past. <laughs> I love that drum fill. <laughs> The, the one that comes <laughs> after the the ascension it's like pretty classic yeah yeah <laughs> yeah the recording's a little bit uh lo-fi but it sounds it's 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 totally totally fun yeah i mean like lo-fi lo-fi is generally pretty good i mean i'd much rather have a lo-fi one of those than a hi-fi one of the other ones Especially like right. mm -hmm. the one that we both really liked a lot. So yeah, I checked that one out, and I really, I really love that one. Yeah, that's super fun. So that's Cat Voltron again, and these, this one, and the next two are all on tmbs.bandcamp.com. So then the next one on this same compilation 
is um god there's so many tracks okay anthony mercer let me play a minute of this one It's so, uh, it's so heartwarming, you know. That, that's another good one. I mean, obviously, he's singing a little bit out of his range, like he can't quite grab the low note. But generally, it's so low. It's, it's entertaining, you know. It's, it's it's fine. Yeah, and am I wrong, or does he take it from A minor to A major? I th- he makes it so happy sounding. I think he makes it ma- a major key yeah. song. I, th- I think you're right. I think you're right. Which is a pretty fun way to flip it, because yeah, now it now it really does sound sincere. I wanna thank you, for, yeah, right? It just yeah. sounds so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's Anthony Mercer. Yeah, I like that one a lot too. And then we got one more. This is also on the TMBS Bandcamp. This one is uh, I don't know if it's Easy Armor or Easy Amor. It's capital E, capital Z. A-M-O-R Snail Shell. So let's listen to this one more here. there greg three winners <laughs> they all have something that that a good remix has to have which is spirit 
like even the one like where he doesn't even have the vocal creates that kind of feeling we get from the thrust the original like with the low thing mm -hmm. that he that he that he throws in and on the second one you know that little keyboard you know and then that little that little chimey thing where he turns the chorus into a major thing and then first one like the blues swing they all kind of brought something of their own but somehow incorporated the core like emotion of the original so i i, I my hats mm -hmm. off to all three of those th those artists good job yeah they're great and that uh yeah the synth <clears throat> the buzzing sense of that last one reminded me this is something I maybe should have put earlier in the episode, but there was this thing I sent you. It was one of the follow-up emails. I always forget about this promotional thing they did for John Henry uh, called a HyperCard, and it was a application for old Apple computers, old Apple Macintosh computers called a HyperCard. And I sent you a YouTube link. It's no longer... I know there was like a F Adobe Flash version that someone uploaded in recent years, but now Flash is no more. I think they discontinued that. So um, my friend Peter, Peter Gritch, uploaded it to YouTube. It's the John Henry HyperCard, which John Linnell put together as a promotional tool. It was on the Electra site, on the They Might Be Giants uh, portion of the Electra site. Um, and it has just this little like 15-second... I don't know if you'd even call it MIDI at that time, maybe, um, version of Snail Shell. So I'm going <laughs> to drop this in. And that's it. <laughs> that's, that's so Linnell. Especially the low one. <laughs> that is so John Linnell. Yeah. He loved like it's like a bassoon patch or something. <laughs> it's like a robot bassoon, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you got yeah. The the link is in one of the follow up emails I sent you though. If you want to check that out, just on your own time, it has these little 10, 15 second weird little versions of all the songs on the album. And it's just, it's it's a laugh riot, honestly. The whole thing is just hilarious. <laughs> and it's so, it's so 1994 <laughs> technology. Yeah, amazing. Oh, man. All right, so the last thing we need to talk about is that video. And I saved this for the end because you told me you had some stories about the music video uh, for Snail Shell. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we were on tour, and I think what happened was, uh, you know, the East had opened up, like the wall had come down, and mm -hmm. somebody got a line on the TV studio, uh, the East German TV studio in East Berlin. And uh, so... It seemed like a good idea, so we <laughs> trundled off to uh, to this TV studio, and uh, it was amazing in that it was uh, it was just like a straight up bunker, you know, like the walls <laughs> were five feet thick, you know, and 
you went down into the <laughs> bowels of the earth. And, uh, you know, like the video of Ford Snail Shell, the gear and the people in the video, not, not, not us, but the scientists and the gear, uh -huh. I'm telling you, it's not that far from what the studio looked like. It was all old stuff, and uh, yeah. and there was and there was no air conditioning, and so we have all these we we have all these lights, and uh, it was summer. It was so hot. many lights. It was hot <laughs> because then that video is really bright. Um, so yeah, I mean those are those are the things that come to my mind as far as stories go. I mean I don't have a whole lot other than that. We just did the song a million times, you know. For the I forget yeah. the direct, I forget who directed that, but uh, uh, Nico Nico Bayer or Bayer Nico Bayer. Ultimately, you got to say that's a pretty that's a pretty fun video. Oh, it's fantastic, and the the wardrobe that had to have been all giants and not the director, right? Cause Linnell's got his, he was rocking those turtlenecks in the era, but then, so we got you guys matching up. We got Linnell and Brian are both in turtlenecks and then you and Flans are both in white button up shirts. Yeah. That, <laughs> that was, was all John's right. Or was it the sneaker? Always totally John. Totally John. <laughs> yeah. And then you and Flans also have your, uh, matching Dan Electro, Guitar and bass. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was not my Dan Electro. Uh, my Dan Electro is black and white, and I think that one was, uh, I think it was, uh, you know, kind of like the pink, white-edged one, kind of like this one. Yeah, um, it's like kind one. of a sunbursty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was fun. But Flan's like, no, they, we got to have matching guitars. <laughs> you know, I made a bunch of videos with Perubu, and I have to say that uh, the Giants one, out of all the videos I've been in, I, I'd say that's my favorite. It's just, I mean, it's snail shells. So, I mean, you know, you're already on third base before you even shoot a frame of video. Um <laughs> It's it's just really funny, uh, <laughs> you know how they use the space to have like these guys like manning these old pre World War Two consoles, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it's so it's yeah, it's so Cold War. It's uh, it's amazing. There is a quote on the uh, the wiki that's taken from Brian's old uh, website. And so Brian Doherty, he, he says, quote, uh, we traveled to East Berlin to shoot this video and he said a television museum And it. You'll notice that I never opened my eyes. For some reason, the director insisted that I play with my eyes closed as a way of conveying intensity and drama. Oh. <laughs> what? <laughs> and he also says, if, if you remember this, he says, uh, the dude in the electric chair, the original script read that this guy's character would get his head shaved on an operating table before going to the electric chair. 
When it came to shooting the scene, the actor <laughs> cried like a baby as the electric shavers turned on. The director took pity and omitted that part where the guy gets his head shaved. <laughs> did that happen? <laughs> if it did, I wasn't there when it happened. It, it, it seriously was really, really warm. I think we were probably outside cooling off while they were torturing the actor. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. When at any second when a camera wasn't on you, you were out getting fresh air. <laughs> um, now, is this true? There is a, a, a point here on the wiki that says that you and Brian were originally not supposed to appear in the video. Is that right? Um, I wasn't aware of that. The citation goes back to uh, Brian's old website again. He said, uh, let's see. Okay, so Brian said, the day before this shoot, I was at home in Stone Ridge, New York, when I realized that I didn't have a plane ticket yet. Tony, the bass player, also didn't have one. We immediately called the TMBG office and got an intern to book our flights. Why the screw up? What would the Johns have done had we not made the video shoot? He says, they would have enjoyed the travel savings and hired two Germans to mimic the bass and drum parts. <laughs> exactly. Wow, I didn't Do you realize remember this, though? Were you like, it, shit, we got it. Wow, I don't remember that. <laughs> they flew us in for the video? They flew us yeah, in I for mean, the video? Yeah, I mean, weren't you saying that you were already on tour? That's what I thought. But I hmm. would definitely trust... Brian's memory more than mine, for sure. <laughs> well, either way, I'm glad you got in the video because, I mean, so many of those classic, um, I mean, during the, the MTV era of actually playing videos like these classic They Might Be Giants videos, so many of them are from the duo era. And then the ones that are from the full band era, oftentimes, like, I don't know if you've seen the video for Dr. Worm, like even though Danny Weinkoff plays bass on it and Dan Miller plays guitar on it, they don't get to be in the video. Dan Hickey does drums on the video, even though he wasn't the one drumming on the track. I don't know. Again, it's the Johns, I guess, just having the specific vision and uh, it's, you know, they're the Johns. So they kind of do what they want. <laughs> As they should. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and pretty much every guy that I've talked to, uh, that has worked with them. It's pretty much just like they're there. They might be giants. The Johns are, they might be giants and we are, and we go, you know, where they, you know, when they tell us to go there, we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it sounds like overall is good time playing with them. Right. And then, and then parting, you know, to start your studio was uh, not a big, no drama or anything like that. Then. No, because, I had, you know, I had talked to Flans a little bit about it, and uh, you know, time, you know, was going on. I I found this space and I started working on it, and you know, I was really trying to get the place done, and uh, you know, they had they had plenty of notice. It wasn't like I said, "That's it, goodbye." You know, it was like uh, right. it was orchestrated pretty much so that it was a it was a seamless transition. That's good. That's good. Yeah. So the um, the final portion to these episodes, and I did not tell you this ahead of time. 
because <laughs> I wanted to surprise you with it, is that I make my guests score the song that they are talking about. Now, it's a little different for you since you played on it. But what we do is we score it on a scale of uh, 1 to 10, and you can use decimals, uh, scoring it against relative to other They Might Be Giants songs. So not against, you know, Blown in the Wind or <laughs> whatever. You know, you're ranking it against other They Might Be Giants songs. So maybe Snail Shell's a 10 for you, or maybe something else would be a 10, and this would be a little lower. What do, what do you think you would score this song as a guy who played bass on it? I would put this at the top of the pile, like right next to their greatest. You know, like their, their best. You know, like, like if someone said to me, play me two songs from this band called They Might Be Giants. You know what, what? What? Who are these guys? Like, what do they do? Yeah. You know, I think if you played them Birdhouse, they would they would get this this kind of beautiful, uh, you know, pop song uh-huh. that's got all these lovely like pop devices in it. And then I'd play them Snail Show because it's so it's not wacky. But it's so far away from so much of what else they did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I put I yeah. put it right up there. Like I hadn't heard it in a long time, and I listened to it. You know, because we were going to be talking about it, and it's just a great song. It's just a really yeah. great song. It's fun. It's inventive. It's like quarterly harmonically. It does interesting things, but it's not like mm-hmm. it's not trying to be complex. Right. Yeah. It's it's sneaky like that. <laughs> it's an unfurling of a song. But uh yeah, mm. it's definitely definitely like the, one of my tops. Cause I, I'm making you settle on a number here. Are you giving it a ten? Or are you going nine point nine? Hell, man! I'll give it a ten. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, the guys let me pop the bass on a "They Might Be Giants" song. I mean, <laughs> come on! I gotta give them a yeah. ten. I have to. <laughs> yeah, I said. Yeah, I can't think of other slap bass in uh, "They Might Be Giants" songs. It's a very, very distinctive song. So, for my score, I'm thinking. I mean, this is this is going to be episode 117. So I've done that wow. many songs, and I've got to I've got to score them all. So my tens are very selective. This one, I'd say, I'm going to go 8.2, but that is very high. I'm very selective with eights, nines, and tens because I got the long haul ahead of me. I got to rank a lot of other ones. Birdhouse, ten for sure. Um, yeah, snail shell, super solid, and I gained even more appreciation. I'd say my score even notched up from what I might have thought before I started doing this research into it, analyzing the chord progression, and just really, you know, sinking my teeth into, like you said, the complexities. And you said uh, unfurling. I, that's that's <laughs> that's amazing. There, unfurling of a song. I like that uh, description. <laughs> that's amazing. I was gonna say I was trying to guess what your score was going to be 
And I would have thought for sure you would have given it an eight point nine. That's that. That was the number that I <laughs> thought that you, you were going to come up with. I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I got nothing but good things to say about this song, really. But it's just there's there's so many songs. There's so many. Yeah, yeah. So many great ones. <laughs> so the only thing now to do is uh, plug. What plugs you got for us? Obviously. Studio G can can just anybody go and record at Studio G? Can oh, they yeah. can they call you up and ask for rates? Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, if you just go to the Studio G Brooklyn uh, website, there's a number that you call, and uh, Chris Delolio is uh, is the guy that uh, handles um, all of the booking, and uh, but also if somebody ever wanted to come by and say hi. They could reach out to me. I think my email's on the website. Uh, my phone number's on there. I'd be more than happy to mm-hmm. give someone a tour if they just wanted to have a look. It it looks pretty sweet. You guys got a lot of rooms. It's a big place. Yeah, we took the bottom. We took the bottom floor, which is another five thousand square feet, last summer, and uh, we're almost oh, wow. done. Almost done with the build out. Um, I've done like a couple of kind of wacky records. Uh, one of them is called MRT. Um, that's on Spotify. It's an ambient record. I play some slide bass mm. and I play this synthesizer and some keyboards. Uh, my friend Ruben uh, plays guitar and Marcus Cummins plays uh, saxophone. It's improv and ambient and electronic. Um, awesome. If somebody wants to hear something really... Um, like a little, like really, like different than say rock and pop. Uh, uh, Natalie Yoshim, her last name is J O A C H I M. Her record Fan Diaiti is something that mm-hmm. I think uh, Giants fans might might be into. Um, and there's a lot of other stuff. You know, I, I need to get a little more informative i need to get a little web i need to like get my website up <laughs> but, oh yeah uh, keeping that stuff up to date is a whole job in itself right but uh, and social media stuff yeah you can know, people find you on social media you're on twitter right uh i'm on twitter at tony maimone uh and i'm tone base on facebook and on instagram yeah i'm around perfect yeah Mm-hmm. Keep got to keep up with those kids, you know, on the internet. <laughs> Greg, it was a pleasure uh, doing this with you. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, thank you for asking me on, and uh, you know, I know it took a while for us to get it together, but uh, it's been really fun walking down this memory lane with you. Really, really good fun. Yeah, man. That was a blast, and I know uh, my listeners are going to really enjoy this. And uh, if you ever want to come on again and talk about some other song, you are welcome to and plug whatever records you're working on then. But uh, yeah, as, as for me, people can find This Might Be a Podcast on Twitter as well. This Might Be a Pod. You can email me, This Might Be a Pod at Gmail. You can leave me voicemails at 224-801-2930. And I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash This Might Be a Podcast. Yeah, Tony, that was... Awesome. Thank you so much for indulging me and talking for so long. You're welcome. 
You're welcome, man. <laughs> All the best. All right, dude. Have a good night. You too, man.